Welcome to Mad Dogs and Englishmen, a glorious Monday afternoon here at Buckley Towers. I'm sitting here with Charles Cook, and you know, we make tons of content, including this podcast, available to you online, and there's so much there at National Review Online and the various other electronic outlets that we have that people sometimes forget we put out a magazine uh, every two weeks. It's called National Review. It's called National Review. It comes on paper. Uh, you can get it at Barnes and Noble or in the mail or various various other places. And uh, so sometimes you will notice with a little uh, eccentricity in our podcast scheduling, since to follow a fortnightly pattern which has to do with our magazine deadlines, of which uh, today is uh, one or the beginning of one anyway. So uh, you know we have a Monday editorial meeting. We talk about what's going to be in the week. People start turning in their stories by Tuesday night. The magazine's really got to be done. And then Wednesday, the whole process starts all over again. So I thought we'd talk a little bit today about what Charlie and I are actually writing for our next magazine pieces, uh, both because we want to talk about it, but also to encourage you to go out and find them uh, when they come out, because they're not available online generally. And Charlie is uh, working on something that um, might seem a little unusual for National Review, but is not unusual for Charlie, who happens to be a fanatic about this particular subject. Uh, which is the subject of roller coasters. Apparently, there's something to say about the politics and economics thereof. I can't imagine what it is. Charlie, tell me more. Well, it's not just the economics and politics, although that is one of my my points here, but we love America on the right. We really do. We think America is special. Um, I certainly think that it is exceptional in the classical sense of that word. I never quite know how to articulate this, but especially being an atheist, but I almost feel as if it is um, different or ordained as a country. City on a hill, one might say. Yeah, a city on a hill. And yet, I note that we do spend an awful lot of time being depressive. Yeah. And there are so many things, I think, probably because we're scared of it disappearing and because eternal vigilance is the price of liberty and all that. Um, So many things that you and I write effectively come down to don't do this, don't do that, isn't this terrible, but... There are so many great things about America that are still true. Um, you know, I, I love baseball. <laughs> you know, I love driving across the country. I love the food. I love the people. I love the fact that if you sit down at a bar in the Midwest and start talking to the person next to you within about seven minutes, he will have offered you his car, asked <laughs> if you want to go shooting, and possibly even his daughter's hand in marriage. And one of the things about this country and that I've always loved ever since I was a child is its amusement parks and its boardwalks and its roller coasters. And it's a very American thing. Certainly there are roller coasters and boardwalks and amusement parks of a sort in other parts of the world. It has caught on. But generally, even when other countries get them, they are either put in by American companies or they emulate the American model. It's you not- been to Euro Disney? Actually, I haven't been. We'll come back to that. I haven't been to Euro Disney very deliberately. Okay. But... It's not just the Disney parks. There's one going in in Shanghai. It'll be open next year. There's already one in Hong Kong. There's one in Tokyo. There's one in France. Obviously, the two great ones are here in the United States, the original being in California, 1955. But it's not just that we export uh, Disney and uh, its uh, its sort of theme. Uh, It's that when other countries run amusement parks and build roller coasters, they make them very crudely um, American. You know, they they are celebrations of Americana, and and this really was something that that started in the United States. Now, 
roller coasters, for example, were not actually invented in the United States. Now, in their modern film, they were. The steel roller coaster was invented in the United States. But the idea for roller coaster or Montagnes Russian mountains, as the French said, comes from ice slides and St. Petersburg in the 16th, 17th centuries. And then the French adopted these ice slides or variants uh, in the 18th and 19th century, largely at the behest of, of aristocrats. And, you know, Catherine the Great in Russia had a roller coaster of sorts installed in her garden, and the French did the same thing in Paris. And you know, but in America, they were they were commercial enterprises, sometimes by accident. And that you know, the first real American roller coaster was was installed. It was a switchback railway installed in in Pennsylvania by uh, a mining magnate, anthracite uh, magnate, who soon learned that people asked whether they could ride his switchback railways when it, railway when it wasn't being used. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I'm talking not just your average punter who's hanging around that part of Pennsylvania, but eventually President Ulysses S. Grant and Thomas Edison and the Astor family. You know, th- and this became a profitable business, and soon patents started rolling in and American ingenuity being what it was the wooden roller coaster had been invented and there were 1500 of them so you know you have a you have a, a, a certain sort of ingenuity here and a certain entrepreneurialism which you also see on boardwalks again another American invention government puts in a walkway so that people can enjoy the sea and before you know it somebody has opened a restaurant and another person has opened a clown show and another person has opened a lavatory and these uh, built themselves up without really any central direction. In fact, the master planner, Robert Moses, who designed a lot of New York and masterminded the 1964 World's Fair, uh, loathed Coney Island, for example, and boardwalks across the East Coast for precisely that reason, that they weren't planned. But again, it was capitalism coming together. And, you know, my point, except that I just like talking about roller coasters, is something that I know about, is that there really isn't much of a rational explanation for a roller coaster. I mean, you don't see them in communist countries. No. You don't see them in heavily centralized economies. They are products of the free market. And so I've written a, a little essay in in National Review for this issue uh, about the the uniquely American idea that is the boardwalk and the amusement park. Interesting. You know, uh, well, maybe we'll come back to this later. I hate theme parks. I hate amusement parks. I don't like roller coasters. Um, but I understand the uh, the case for them. And I think it is something in particular about our culture, this certain sort of exuberance that is part of the United States. I think it's really um, interesting about our conversation uh, earlier on this. And I used to think that it was really a remarkable fact that... Uh, which one's in California? Disneyland or Disney World? I it's Disneyland, the original. Disneyland, the original opens up something like a dozen years after the end of the Great Depression. You know, we go from the depths of the Depression to uh, to opening Disneyland in, in less than two decades, really less than a decade and a half, I guess, uh, which seemed to me remarkable at the time, but I understand from you that it's not so much, because we're on this roller coaster building boom up until the Depression hits. Well, but the Depression wiped out. It is remarkable. I think your original point stands because, you know, by the end of the 1920s, by the time the Wall Street crash comes around, there are 1,500 wooden roller coasters in the United States. Now, just to put that in context, 
that that is about as many roller coasters, uh, and this is of course including tiny ones, most of which uh, most European roller coasters are tiny. There are around fifteen hundred roller coasters in Europe now. So we're talking by the end of the 1920s, you had 1,500, and they basically all disappeared because the Depression, people didn't have disposable income and free time. And so, you know, not just boardwalks, but all across the country, these things just uh, rot. Uh, There are, of course, National Historical Landmarks now uh, and and congressional attempts to preserve roller coasters from the 1920s that are of historical importance. The Coney Island Cyclone is one of them. Mm. Um, The... Uh, big Dippers um, in uh, in California, one in Santa Cruz, uh, another one in San Diego, and then an original Leap the Dip style ride that, in fact, is affectionately referred to as now as like riding a, a sofa on wheels. Um, in Pennsylvania, those have all been designated as National Historical Landmarks. And the reason for this is that the Depression basically wiped out the roller coaster stock in the country. And it wasn't until 1959 in which Walt Disney invents the steel roller coaster at Disneyland with the Matterhorn bobsleds and until 1972 when the racer at Kings Island in Ohio uh, comes along that this renaissance in roller coasters starts up again so you know you're you're much more right than than you know Hmm. because not only did the United States... It's always pleasant to be more right than I know. Yeah, but not only did the United States find itself in a position in which the amusement park and boardwalk and roller coaster boom had been uh, essentially disappeared and forgotten at the end of the Depression. Um, but there was no great uh, attempt to restore it. And so within 16 years of the Wall Street... Uh, sorry, t- uh, 26 years uh, of the Wall Street crash, within 10 years of the end of the Second World War, Disneyland was open. <laughs> yeah. And that really was a remarkable turnaround. Um, yeah, you think about it, there were people who were born, you know, in the Grapes of Wrath, and by the time they were in high school, it's Disneyland. Yeah, see, my, my uh, fake American grandmother actually had a friend who lived in uh, near Anaheim mm. uh, on one of the orange farms that became Disneyland. In fact, the, the house that she would visit was, it is now the Haunted Mansion. I mean, it's not the same house, but it's on the same location. And she tells me she was born in... Well, she's a lady, I shan't say. But she was <laughs> she was a child during the Depression, put it that way. Yes. And we were... Uh, she was explaining to me that she would go and visit this orange farm and just look out at this huge, expansive land where there was just nothing but oranges. Yeah. And now, not only is there, is there Disneyland... For those of you who are in the car, that's our siren. Yeah. Behind you. <laughs> not only is there Disneyland, uh, but there is a, a vast convention center and uh, a huge number of hotels and goodness knows uh, what else economic development but uh, yeah I mean Disney and Disney did the same thing in Florida of course which is to take over an area where nobody wanted to live but the speed with which that was resuscitated is impressive so yeah you were right so I'm, I'm recalling from when I was dragged to Six Flags over Texas as a child there was a ride called the uh, Runaway Mine Train. So and I guess in a sense that's hearkening back to the original roller coaster, as you were saying. Sure. It's not just a theming gimmick. Yeah. I mean, they uh, they were basically switchback railways. And the early prototypes... What's a switchback railway? Um, so they were loops of track that were used for, um, you know, moving coal or... 
water or anything that required a railway and um, where there was a, a, a steep hill you know yeah. what you would basically do is you would uh, back the track back the car up the hill you know collect something take it back down or vice versa but of course they quickly realized that you know you could also just let the car go from the top and it was pretty thrilling to sit in <laughs> and so people enjoyed the experience and do you have uh, a um, do you have a favorite american roller coaster or a favorite roller coaster in the world well this is if there are any roller coaster geeks who are listening i'm sure they will um feel my pain here i do have a favorite roller coaster but it's been ruined i would say actually before i answer this question the rise in litigiousness in the united states did to an extent ruin the roller coaster renaissance there's a beautiful installation in in Tampa, Florida, at Bush Gardens called Montu. It's built in 1996, and it was just the most stunning inverted roller coaster built by the master uh, manufacturer Bolliger and Mabillard. I don't know how you say that in there. They're Swiss on German. Boyger and Mabillard, perhaps. But they really revolutionised roller coasters in the 1990s because not only was the economy booming, and so the orders were coming in, but they had simultaneous breakthroughs in metallurgy and in computer-aided design. So they reinvented this, and and this was sort of the pinnacle of their career, this ride, uh, Montu at Busch Gardens. And someone rode it when it first opened, and they came off saying, well, it was very intense, I'm very dizzy, I didn't like it. And they sued the park. And many corporations being spineless and just wanting to get them, their reputations uh, out of the news uh, agreed to install brakes all over it so that it would be less intense. Mm. Now, they'd spent $12 million building an intense roller coaster at an amusement park and then they spent some money ruining it. And so now when you ride it, you feel as you get up to the sort of best of the elements, which is called a bat wing. I won't bother explaining quite what it does, but there is a, a brake, a trim brake, and you feel the car slow down, and the second half of the ride crawls because of this. So, you know, this tendency has also led to the over-engineering of roller coasters, especially steel roller coasters. Now, the wooden ones are, are, are making a comeback, and they're as intense as ever. But the steel ones have started to be built with this in mind. Now, the reason I mention this, there's a roller coaster in Florida, Islands of Adventure, called uh, Dueling Dragons, or it used to be called Dueling Dragons, and they're two inverted roller coasters that go through a series of near misses. They were designed specifically so that you see the other car at most of the time when you're on the track and you almost hit it and your legs almost hit the other people's legs. Um, and it has a very clever piece of technology in its lift hill because obviously one of the variables in roller coaster design is how heavy the car is. Right. And so it would work out how heavy the two cars were and then it would make sure that the cars were in line when they got to the top of the lift hill so that it would duel properly. Anyway, something horrible happened. Uh, you know, there was some unsecured item in one of the cars and somebody lost a, an eye. Mm. And now they don't duel it anymore. Yeah, there was a problem, I remember, I say, with the shockwave, maybe back in the 70s at Six Flags, where something happened, somebody fell out of a car or something. Yeah. Well, so almost every roller coaster accident 
is either a myth or was the fault of the rider. There are a few occasions on which things have gone wrong and people have died because of the roller coasters themselves. But people love to tell roller coaster horror stories. Course, it's one yes. of these urban myth minefields. Because it makes the roller coasters even scarier, right? Yeah, it does. Think maybe not, they don't work right. Uh, on average, if you hear a roller coaster story, it's nonsense. I mean, most roller coaster deaths are people who jump over the fence get onto the track and are hit by the car uh-huh. or somebody who manages somehow to escape from the restraints so but anyway that was my favorite roller coaster but uh, i'm boycotting the park now because there's such a bunch of wusses litigiousness <laughs> as you know in the course of this conversation i'm reminded of something that i've i thought a number of times which is that um you know you started off talking about loving america I think you like it a little more than I do. Yes. Honestly, as an immigrant. Um, and I think maybe that shows up in, uh, in my attitude toward theme parks. Uh, I've never been to either of the, of the Disney parks. Um, I've been dragged along to various other uh, smaller ones, you know, the Six Flags parks and uh, local things and county fairs and things like that. And, you know, I just, I hate them. I hate the crowds. I hate the people. I hate the smells. Don't like the rides. Uh, the whole process, for some reason, just offends me. But that and, but that uh, doesn't mean you like America less than me, but there are probably other areas in which you would say the same thing. Yeah, there's a, there are a lot of aspects of American life that I think just um, <clears throat> hit me a little harder than they hit you. Maybe I'm a little less optimistic about it. Because when I think about what I don't like about the United States in the 21st century, I mean, yeah, sure, some of it's government and politics and policy, but a lot of it's theme parks and the people who are there and the sorts of uh, amusements. And I try to be, you know, one of my least favorite kinds of snobbery, and there are all sorts of bad kinds of snobbery, but the worst, one of the worst kinds of snobbery, I think, is sneering at how other people entertain themselves. Like people who sneer at NASCAR, people who sneer at people who fish or hunt or who watch the wrong sort of television show or go to the wrong sort of movie. I don't uh, begrudge anyone else their... Amusements. I really don't. You know, do what you want to do, read what you want to read, like what you want to like. But there is something about the, the, the sort of just broader aesthetics of public places and public life in the United States that I find uh, unattractive in, in lots of ways. And you go to a place, I don't want to be mean to any particular city, but... Um, you well, go, if you're going to, you should choose one in Ohio, because you hate Ohio. Right, you go to Cleveland. So. <laughs> I also hate Ohio a lot, but you go to a place like Cleveland, or Cincinnati for that matter. I was going to say Atlanta, and it's true of Atlanta as well. And uh, there are some lovely places in all of those places. But by and large, it's just such an ugly uh, world in so many ways. It's, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's an aesthetically displeasing place. Uh, you know, one of the worst things to do, and you and I both do this a lot, I imagine, is take the uh, Amtrak between New York City and Washington, D.C. Yeah. And uh, you see some of just the most hideous, awful uh, parts of the United States. I mean, the whole ride is depressing. You know, Trenton and Bucks County and parts of Philadelphia you go through in North Philly and all that in Maryland. And it's just all... Compared but, with a lot of other train rides in the world. Yeah, that's true, but in an absolute sense, I suppose it's ugly. But I always ask myself, but compared to what? I mean, if you take a train from Charles de Gaulle Airport into Paris, it's incredibly depressing, but Paris is still an amazing place. If you take a train from my parents' house near Cambridge in England into London, you just go through the slummy area and it's, and yeah. it's depressing. But 
you know, firstly, what is the lifestyle of the people who live in the more depressing areas in the United States compared to, say, in the slums around Paris? I think it's probably far superior. Oh, yeah, of course. And secondly, yes, that is a depressing train ride. But most of the country is unpopulated. There's beautiful drives that you can take. It's nice to fly over. And I don't, for what it's worth, share your your critique of the average city. When I was in Indianapolis for the NRA convention, I just like America. Maybe maybe you're right. I just like being in America. Yeah, maybe you do more than I do. I don't know. Uh, we're wandering a little bit of field with this, but I'm thinking, you know, I was, you know, say the train ride between, you know, Zurich and Stuttgart, you know, it's a much nicer ride. Well, that's true. Um, but also, you know, even the drives in a lot of places. But if of the there country. were a train between, you know, Nevada and Flagstaff, then they would probably be stunning as well. Uh, I don't know about that. But, um, but even, you know, this, and, and I like to drive, as you know, I like to drive a lot, and I will take uh, unnecessarily long car trips when I could fly just because I like to drive. And but even then, you're driving on the interstates around the country. You know, is so monotonous. Uh, you know, the same things over and over. Uh, someone once joked, you could describe uh, any intersection on the interstate highway the same way, which is that you know, there's a McDonald's on one side, a uh, Exxon on the other, and I forget what the other thing you know he said was. And it's kind of true. But um, so I think maybe you know you were a little more um, charitably inclined toward the 21st century. United States than I am. I mean, there are a lot of things about it that I like and that I find uh, exciting. Maybe it's just, you know, it comes down to a matter of, uh, you know, tastes and preferences. And for some reason, sure. while I sort of enjoy hearing you talk about roller coasters, I just kind of don't get it. When you, when you qualify your dislike with the words 21st century, wh- when would you have preferred aesthetically? Yeah, well, that's the thing. You know, I'm... I'm not a partisan of nostalgia because um, I'm, I'm old enough to remember the 1970s and the 1980s, and those were fairly you know ugly times too in a lot of ways. Plus, they didn't have a lot of the cool stuff that we have now. Um, you know, I'm just I guess I have um, you know for a guy from Lubbock, Texas, it's hard to say that your tastes are really all that rarefied, which I don't really think mine are. But and you don't even say rarefied that way; do you say rarefied? But um, there are a fairly small number of places and environments around, I guess, where I, I, I look around and find myself pleased to be there. Uh, and I don't know. So yeah, actually, uh, part of me wants to say the 15th century, but you know, of course I you know enough about the 15th century and you know what it was really like. You see, I, I think in this regard I am just an America partisan and I can't explain it. And I always choose the better parts of the United States when people ask me why I love it. I pick the First Amendment and I pick Etta James and I pick the uh, terminal at Grand Central and I pick driving across Arizona. But the truth is that I like all of those things that you've just said you don't. Mm -hmm. And I go to Michigan and walk into a Bass Pro shop. I love it. I love watching people buying whatever they're buying in Bass Pro. If I drive around the Southwest and find some terrible motel, I love it. That's Anthony Hopkins' is a hobby, you know this? Yes, absolutely. He buys crappy old cars and drives around, stays in flea bag motels in Albuquerque. I guess, you know, the, the, one of the places like that that I do like is uh, Home Depot's. I very rarely have any reason to go into a Home Depot because, you know, I'm a renter in a one-bedroom apartment not doing a lot of home improvement projects. But um, 
<clears throat> when I am out and about, sometimes I have a need to go into one. There's a certain kind of uh, feeling of ambition, like you know, people are, are working on some sort of project, and, uh, and I certainly certainly do admire that. So I think but I think I think in the in the Simon and Garfunkel uh, romantic conception of America, you know, w- w- what is just as appealing to me are the quotidian references. You know, in my little town, when they talk about the small town with no one in it and the mum is outside doing the laundry. And when, in the song America, when they're on a Greyhound bus and they go through the New Jersey Turnpike and bum a smoke from somebody on the bus, that just resonates with me and I find it difficult to explain why. And it's not, as so many of my friends used to say, well, yes, it resonates with you now because you're romanticizing it and you live in a different country and... You don't want to take a Greyhound bus. Well, I don't greatly like Greyhound buses. I've, I have taken one. But by and large, all of those prosaic elements of American life that... And your view is, is popular on the left as well. Sure. There's a crossover here that, you know, there's so much that's great about America, but there's so much that's ghastly. I don't see the ghastly in the same way as you do, I think. And I'm not sure it would be easy to say that's because I'm an immigrant and maybe that's some of it. But I don't think that's all of it. Could have two the inclinations. This thing the last Greyhound I took was uh, <clears throat> a dedicated service called the uh, Lucky Streak, which runs between uh, the New York City bus terminal and the casinos down at uh, Atlantic City. Another thing about the twenty first century that I don't like very much is casinos just bother me to death. Uh, I think they're just the most hideous and depressing places. But um, I made the, well, as a personal thing, a mistake, but journalistically it was a good idea. I didn't take the Lucky Streak down. I took a different bus service down. I took the Lucky Streak back on a Sunday morning. And uh, all these poor, wretched Slavs who had just blown, you know, their week's Social Security payment or paycheck or whatever down there. And that terminal of waiting to go back to New York, back to the uh, bus depot from Atlantic City. Uh, there was a guy there who didn't have any pants, I recall. Uh, he'd lost them or something. He's clearly drunk. And uh, But everyone was just like, oh, this is normal. This is how things happen. Yeah, but it's also fascinating. And, and I don't want to sound sort of haughty and anthropological, but one of the great things about America, and in fact any country that doesn't sanitize itself too much is that you get to see more of human nature and human behavior. I mean, you're never going to see that in Zurich. You're never going to drive out to the trailer park and meet the family who are so utterly different to you as to defy belief. Yeah. Who, who think differently, who speak differently, who behave differently, who believe differently. The, the gamut of behavior and thought in the US is so much wider than it is in, say, Britain. Yeah, it is. And I think, frankly, that's why I like Zurich so much. I prefer a bit of sanitization. So that's your piece for the week. And we're going to talk about mine as well, but I think we're already running pretty long. But just in case anyone's wondering, it's going to be about Harry Reid and the many sins and depravities thereof and a general bill of indictment against the Senate Majority Leader who, with any luck, will no longer be the Senate Majority Leader, one hopes, come January. Yeah, we should maybe uh, finish with you 
explaining all of the things you like about Harry Reid. Oh, I'd be glad to. 